have to step into the darkness to see the light. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to The Experiment Club. I'm your host, Dave Gregory, and before we get on to the deal that is the, this episode's uh, subject matter, uh, we're going to talk about things in the news. And, of course, what well, wouldn't be more appropriate to talk about things in the news than, of course, the COVID-19 virus. That really hasn't been out of the news for over a year. One of the main ones of big concern is that now... Uh, we have people that are being uh, like the New York Yankees who have uh, fully vaccinated team. They've been taking, uh, they've been playing ball and everybody's been vaccinated. And this is what they've had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. But uh, there are now nine players. The article I have up says eight, but there are now nine either players, uh, players and or uh, part of the staff that have uh, the COVID virus 19. Uh, they are have any of the symptoms, but in all likelihood, they are carriers. And most of the doctors and researchers who uh, look at this do not do not want to address that issue publicly. I mean, there has been one uh, that I came across. I do not know where where he went to, but. Uh, yeah, he was uh, he was on there, and uh, he said this uh, protocol for COVID nineteen uh, may be that uh, similar to the HIV virus, and that was deadly. Of course, the virus emerged on the scene uh, thirty years or more uh, uh, in, in history ago. So basically, uh, a lot of people said that virus was put out to. Um, uh, you know, take out the homosexuals and what have you, but uh, you know what? Uh, it uh, that would seem to indicate that it was on purpose because, in all reality, uh, homosexuals, uh, gender uh, swapping uh, people have uh, been in existence since uh, we were created. It's nothing new, and to people who think it is, well, they're mistaken. If you do a little study in history, you'll know what I'm talking about. But ir irregardless of that fact, this is a deeply uh, disconcerting uh, fact. If it should be like HIV, when HIV first emerged on the scene, it, it was so deadly, and so many people suffered from it, and especially the young and innocent who happened to be born uh, with one or the other of the parent being homosexual or just having, not necessarily homosexual, but having um, gone to the other side for a while and came back and fathered uh, a baby who, uh, or mothered a baby who uh, had HIV. And there was such hatred for these children. The fact of the matter is, unless you exchange body fluids, you could not have gotten HIV. And of course, today, they have new biological uh, um, uh, medicines that have pretty much uh, gotten rid of the uh, uh, HIV problem. As long as you stay up on your medication, you can live a normal life. And uh, pity the poor souls that pass 
that didn't have the opportunity to uh, have that be there uh, in but you know it's uh, it's always something and uh, the humanity at that time and all these people were suffering uh, they, they they were just inflicting pain upon pain upon pain at some point in time if humanity uh, doesn't pull their heads out of their asses uh, humanity won't be around much longer because between the puppet masters and those who want to get rid of most of the population of the earth uh, they're having a pretty good job of keeping people fighting amongst themselves if we were ever actually to become cohesive into a group that had strength uh, maybe we could actually accomplish something but as long as we want to cut e each other's throat uh, it's going to be hard times for most people on our starship uh, the planet earth now we're going to take you on we're going to go be going into our next segment which is what basically what this uh, uh, episode 8 is about and that's the history of the United States and how it has to do with the the uh, the Federal Reserve, the last uh, uh, cartel, and you'll find why I call it a cartel that emerged after our first two uh, banks of the United States. In order to get a good handle on the Federal Reserve, it's important to see what history led to its uh, creation. Uh, when the Revolutionary War was over and the Constitution had been uh, the effective law of the land, uh, people uh, had a difference of opinion on whether the, we should have a national bank in the country. Proponents were led by uh, Alexander Hamilton and opponents were led by Madison. Uh, needless to say, this turmoil over over the National Bank has gone on and on, but was effectively uh, uh, done away with in, uh, in Andrew Jackson's uh, ran for election on the Democratic candidate on uh, getting rid of the uh, Bank of the United States. So we're going to see how, how that came about all in all. Uh, President Andrew Jackson on January 30th, 1835, he and other politicians gathered around the Capitol building for the funeral of South Carolina Representative Warren Davis. It was a dreary, misty day, and onlookers observed that it was one of the rare occasions that could bring the fiercest of political rivals side by side on peaceable terms. But the peace wasn't meant to last. President Andrew Jackson was 67 and he had survived more than his fair share of maladies and mishaps, some of them self-provoked, such as the bullet lodged in his chest from a duel from 30 years earlier. 
General Jackson is extremely tall and thin, with a slight stoop, betoking more weakness than naturally belongs to his years, wrote Harriet Martineau, a British social theorist, in her contemporaneous travelogue, Retrospect of Western Travel. Six years into his presidency, Jackson had used bluster and fiery speeches to garner support for his emergent Democratic coalition. He used his veto power far more often than previous presidents, obstructing congressional action and making political enemies in the process. Jackson's apparent infirmity at the funeral belied his famous spitfire personality, which would shortly become apparent. As Jackson exited the East Portico at the end of the funeral, Richard Lawrence, an unemployed painter, accosted him. Lawrence pulled a Derringer pistol from his jacket, aimed at Jackson, and fired. Although the cap fired, the bullet failed to be discharged. As Lawrence withdrew a second pistol, Jackson charged his would-be assassin. Let me alone, let me alone, he shouted. I know where this came from. He then attempted to batter the attacker with his cane. Lawrence fired his second gun, but this one too misfired. And it, this is when uh, Jackson was walking with a hickory cane. And after this uh, occurrence, Jackson, President Jackson was fondly known as Old Hickory. Within moments, Navy Lieutenant Thomas Gagne and Tennessean Congressman Davy Crockett had uh, subdued Lawrence and hurried the president off to a carriage so he could be transported to the White House. When Lawrence's two pistols were later examined, both were found to be properly loaded and well-functioning. They fired afterwards without fail, carrying their bullets true and driving them through inch boards at 30 feet, said U.S. Senator Thomas Hart Benton. An arms expert later calculated that the likelihood of both pistols misfiring was 125,000 to 1 chance. It makes you, begs you to wonder what kind of fate steps in and does this. Who's controlling it? It just, uh, it just makes you wonder what's going on, you know. Okay, but, you know, it was the first attempt to assassinate a sitting president. And in the aftermath, attention was focused less on how to keep the president safe and more on the flinging of wild accusations. Jackson himself was convinced the attack was politically motivated and charged rival politician George Pindexter with hiring Lawrence. No evidence was ever found of this, and Poindexter was cleared of all wrongdoing. Before two hours were over, the name of almost every eminent politician was mixed up with that of the poor maniac who caused the uproar. Martin knew who was at the Capitol building during the attack, wrote, Later that evening, she attended a party with the defiant president. 
Jackson protested in the presence of many strangers that there was no insanity in the case, Martin Anu observed. I was silent, of course. He protested that there was a plot and that the man was a tool and at length quoted the Attorney General as his authority. It was painful to hear a chief ruler publicly trying to persuade a foreigner that any of his constitutes hated him to death and I took the liberty of changing the subject as soon as I could. Indeed, Lawrence's insanity was fairly obvious. One moment, please, while we make a commercial break. Not only did the painter believe the president had killed his father, he was also convinced he was a 15th century English king, Richard III, and was entitled to payments from his American colonies, and that Jackson had prevented him from receiving the money because he opposed reauthorizing the charter for the Second Bank of the United States. At the trial in 1835, with Attorney Francis Scott Key presenting prosecuting Lawrence, announced to the jurors, It is for me, gentlemen, to pass upon you and not upon me. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and confirmed to a hospital for the mentally, mentally ill until his death in 1861. You see that? He, he turned to the jury <laughs> and he said, I'm going to pass judgment on you. Don't think about passing judgment on me. I'm going to do that on you. Remember that if you're ever in that kind of situation. In the years before the assassination attempt, Jackson came out swinging against the Bank of the United States. The Chartered Corporation Bus, B.U.S., was the second of its kind. The first was chartered in 1791 as the brainchild of Alexander Hamilton. When Congress allowed the charter on the first bank to expire in 1811, they quickly discovered how important a function it served. It issued currency, opened branches throughout the country, brokered loans that the U.S. needed more money, and moved money between banks. So in 1816, Congress passed a new 20-year long charter for the bank. In the period of the 1820s, most observers thought the bank behaved responsibly. It served the government well and kept uh, out of politics, says historian Daniel Feller, editor of the papers of Andrew Jackson. In 1829, Jackson attacked the banks and the kind of startled everybody. He said it represented a dangerous concentration of power. Jackson thought the bank represented the dangers of the wealthy aristocrats occupying a place of privilege in government that wasn't accessible to average Americans. He said, it is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes that his broader philosophical objection to the bank feller said, Isn't it remarkable? Here we are in 2021. And pretty much the same thing is going on today. We still have the rich and powerful 
manipulating the people and and you do uh, realize that this argument just about from the beginning I mean like from Andrew Jackson on up through and Andrew Jackson once again he was uh, the, de the new Democratic Party so his way to try to uh, take what he believed would be a better course of action than, excuse me for hitting the mic, but a better cor uh, course of action would be to uh, get rid of the uh, Bank of the United States at the end of his next term or at at the beginning of his next term, he had oh, he'd have four years to do it. So, in 1832, Congress passed a bill to preemptive, preemptively recharter the B, uh, Bank of the United States. Jackson vetoed it, though the bank would remain in place for another four years. There you go. The veto became a major campaign issue when Jackson ran for re-election that year. And powered by overwhelming electoral victory over his opponent, Henry Clay, who believed the National Bank allowed the federal government to manage the well-being of the country's economy, <clears throat> Jackson decided to remove federal deposits, money that came from customs officers collecting revenue and ports and other government funds, and deposit them and state chartered banks, which made it impossible for the bank to regulate the country's currency. The move also further provoked Congress, who members saw it as a huge overreach of executive power. In response to his move, the Senate censured Jackson in 1834, assuming power not conferred by the Constitution. It was the first and only time the Senate ever censured a president. The back and forth battle between uh, between known as the bank war, it transfixed the country to the point where even someone with clear mental instability could easily reference it in his assassination attempt. In the end, Jackson won his war. The second charter for the charter for the second bank expired in 1836, and the federal funds. The president had diverted to state banks, remained in their scattered locations. As for security around the White House and the Capitol, it remained much as it had been for the duration of Jackson's term. Visitors were still allowed entry into the White House without any particular screening process. It would be another 26 years before another U.S. president, Abraham Lincoln, was targeted for assassination, but a watchful security team thwarted the conspiracy. Four years later, however, they would not be so lucky. And now, a lecture from G. Edward Griffin on the curse of Jekyll Island. Are you ready for this? Okay, so am I. So let's start with history. We'll go back to the first century BC, to a tiny kingdom called Phrygia. And it was in that kingdom that there lived a philosopher by the name of Epictetus. And it was Epictetus who said, Appearances are of four kinds. Things either are as they appear to be, or they neither are nor appear to be. 
or they are, but do not appear to be, or they are not, and yet appear to be. <laughs> Don't worry, no quiz on that. <laughs> well, that's what he said. When I read that statement for the first time, I thought to myself that uh, surely if Epictetus were alive today, he would undoubtedly be a Harvard professor of money and banking. <laughs> because this is the kind of explanation we get, isn't it? When we try and figure out what's going on in the economy, or what's going on with the Federal Reserve System. See, what Epictetus did is what is so commonly done with uh, the experts in this field is he took a relatively simple concept, but by the time he was through explaining it to us, we didn't have the foggiest idea what he's talking about. All he said, basically, was that appearances can sometimes be deceiving. That's all. We all know that. But he had to break it down into four component parts, explain that in two ways they are what they appear to be, and in other two ways they sometimes are not the way they appear to be, and they broke it down and we didn't understand what he's talking about. Nevertheless, I thought that this statement by Epictetus was uh, a brilliant uh, clue for an outline or a theme for my presentation. Because you know, if there's anything in the world that uh, is an appearance that is deceiving, it is the Federal Reserve System. And in particular, it is one of those appearances of the fourth kind, which as I'm sure you all remember, are those which are not and yet appear to be. So that's going to be my theme tonight. I'm going to come back to it now and then if I remember to do it and use it as kind of a punctuation point because this is perhaps at the most fundamental level the most important thing we need to know about the Federal Reserve System which is that it is a, an appearance of the fourth kind, something which is not and yet appears to be. When I did my research on this topic I came to the conclusion, which may startle you folks here, that the Federal Reserve System does not need to be audited. It needs to be abolished. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because I'm sure that if they audited the Federal Reserve System, they would find out that it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. There's no secret there. There's no shenanigan going on behind the scenes. It's all out in the open. If we'll just study the Federal Reserve System on the basis of what we know already, if we'll read their literature, if we'll dig into the history, we find out that it's one of the greatest scams of all history. Out on the surface, it doesn't need an audit. An audit, I'm sure, would merely delay the process for a couple of years, give the American people the false impression that something is being done about this problem, and at the end of two years they'd say, well, the books are clean. <laughs> I came to the conclusion that the Federal Reserve needed to be abolished for seven reasons, actually, and I'd like to read them for you now. I've stated them in rather concise terms. Hopefully they'll have some shock value so you can remember them. And here they are. First of all, it is incapable of accomplishing its stated objectives. Two, it is a cartel operating against the public interest. Three, it is the supreme instrument of usury. Four, it generates our most unfair tax. Five, it encourages war. Six, it destabilizes the economy. And seven, 
It is an instrument of totalitarianism. Now, I don't know what you think about those seven points. I know that a lot of you are uh, totally in agreement with it. I can tell by your reaction. I trust that there are some skeptics here tonight. I hope there are. Otherwise, I feel like the minister talking to the choir. Usually, there are skeptics in my audience. And frankly, those are the ones I'm most interested in talking to. And for the skeptics, I'm sure that you're thinking those sound like pretty far out statements. How could you ever demonstrate them to be true? But I think you would agree, regardless of your preliminary conclusion about those statements, that if any of them could be proven to be true, there would be good enough reason to abolish the Federal Reserve System. So let's take a look and see whether they can be supported. Time doesn't permit to go into all seven of those here this evening, but I would like to splash around on at least the first four of them to show you that indeed there is ample evidence to support these conclusions. And I think the best place to begin with all of this is where the action was, and that is the creation of the Federal Reserve System. And that takes us directly to the title of my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. You can almost hear the music being played in the background as they do some kind of a spot commercial to sell this book. I have to admit I had a lot of fun with that title because I had this fantasy in my mind that some, someday it might be in a bookstore window and people would pass by and think, oh, it's a sequel to Jurassic Park. <laughs> but anyway, that will never happen, I'm sure. The fact of the matter is, for those of you who know uh, a little bit about this topic, the title has quite a bit of meaning in it. And we have a lot to learn by exploring what that meaning is. First of all, Jekyll Island is a real island. It's off the coast of Georgia. And it was on that island back in 1910 that the Federal Reserve System was conceived at a highly secret meeting that took place there. And what I'd like to do is talk about this meeting and show you that, in fact, the Federal Reserve was created there and that in, there was a lot of secrecy surrounding it. And then we'll be confronted with the question, why the secrecy? When things are done in secret, they're often things to hide. And we'll explore what it was that they wanted to hide. And when we finally understand what that was, we'll be face to face with one of the most important facts about the Federal Reserve System that is not generally known. In 1910, Jekyll Island was privately owned, owned by a small group of millionaires. In those days, they were millionaires. In today's dollars, they would be billionaires from New York. This is where their families went to spend the, the winter months. It was a resort island, a resort club. It was called the Jekyll Island Club. And there was a very elaborate clubhouse there, which was the center of their social activities. It's still there, by the way, if anybody wants to visit it. Uh, the island has been purchased by the state of Georgia, and this clubhouse has been uh, renovated. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, around this clubhouse, they had cottages, which were built by many of the families that belonged to the club. Uh, cottages are not exactly the word I would have chosen to describe these structures, 
I remember on taking the tour through one of them, the guide said that there were 14 bathrooms in that cottage. <laughs> so you have an idea of the kind of elegance that was there. In any event, the number of bathrooms has nothing to do with this story. I just get hung up on that because uh, it's hard for me to imagine a cottage with that, many, that much running plumbing. But the important point was that this is where the Federal Reserve System was conceived, is in that clubhouse. So let's tell that story. It all began in November of 1910 when Senator Nelson Aldridge sent his private railroad car to the New Jersey Railroad Station where there it was in readiness for the arrival of himself and six other men who were instructed to come under conditions of great secrecy. For example, they were told to come one at a time, not to be seen together, not to dine together on the night of their departure. If they had arrived at the same time, they were instructed to pretend as though they didn't even know each other. They were to avoid newspaper reporters, because these were well-known men, and had they been spotted by reporters, which often frequented the railroad station, especially had they been seen together, many questions would have been asked. One of the men carried a shotgun in a big black case so that if he had been asked where he was going, he was prepared to say that he was going on a duck hunting trip. And the interesting thing about that little piece of the history is that this man, we find out later from his biographer, never fired a gun in his life. He even had to borrow that shotgun in order to participate in this deception. Even after they got on board the railroad car, this pattern continued. They were told to use first names only, not to use last names. And two of the men adopted code names completely. The reason for that is that they were afraid that the servants on board the train would recognize who they were if they used their last names. And they knew that if word leaked out in that fashion and eventually found its way into the press, the whole purpose of the meeting would have been completely destroyed. So absolute secrecy was essential. Well, the train traveled for two nights and a day on a thousand mile journey to the south. And when they awoke on the second morning, the car was on the siding, the railroad siding at Brunswick, Georgia. And from there, they took the ferry boat across the inland strait to Jekyll Island and to the clubhouse. And for the next nine days, these men sat around a table and hammered out all the important details of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. And incidentally, if you visit that clubhouse today, you can walk down to the end of the one corridor there, and on a door is a brass plaque. And it says, in this room, the Federal Reserve System was created. When they were done, they got back on board the train, back to New York, and disappeared. And for quite a few years after that, these men denied that any such meeting ever took place. It wasn't until after the Federal Reserve was firmly established that only then did they begin to talk openly about it. They wrote books on it, one of them wrote a magazine article, and they gave interviews to newspaper reporters. And so now, many years later, it's possible for us to go to the public record and find in print 
detailed uh, descriptions of what happened at that meeting. Well, who were these men? The first one I've already mentioned, the one with the railroad car, Senator Nelson Aldridge, who was the Republican whip in the Senate. He was also chairman of the National Monetary Commission, which was that special committee of Congress which was created for the purpose of proposing legislation which was to reform banking. That was the idea. Banking needed reform. And the American people were greatly concerned in those days over things that were going on in the banking industry. People were losing their money in the banks because they weren't keeping their promises to hold their deposits in reserve. There were runs on the bank and the banks couldn't pay the people back. But most of all, they were concerned over the concentration of financial power that was in the hands of a small group of very powerful and large banks in New York on Wall Street. This is what they called the Money Trust. That was the name. It was a very popular expression in the newspapers. And quite a few politicians were elected to office on their campaign promise to break the grip of the Money Trust. President Wilson was one of those politicians, by the way. So, that was the purpose of the National Monetary Commission, which was to propose legislation, which eventually became the Federal Reserve Act, to break the grip of the money trust over the financial markets of America. Aldridge was a business associate of J.P. Morgan. He was the father-in-law to John D. Rockefeller, Jr., which means, of course, that eventually he became the grandfather of Nelson Rockefeller our former vice president. You remember his full name was Nelson Aldridge Rockefeller. So he derived his middle name from his famous grandfather. The second person at the meeting was Abraham Piat Andrew, who was assistant secretary of the treasury. He later became a congressman, but he was very prominent in banking circles. Frank Vanderlip was there. He was the president of the National City Bank of New York which was the largest and the most powerful of all the banks in the country, representing the financial interests of William Rockefeller and the international investment firm of Kuhn Loeb and Company. Henry Davison was there. He was the senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles Norton was present. He was the president of the First National Bank of New York, which was another one of the giants. Also, there was Benjamin Strong, who was the head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And incidentally, three years later, when the Federal Reserve System was finally created, he became the first head of the system. And finally, there was Paul Warburg, who was probably the most important of all the men there because of his knowledge of banking as it was practiced in Europe. Paul Warburg was born in Germany. He eventually became a naturalized American citizen. He was a partner in Kuhn Loeb and Company. He was a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France. And through all the years of his banking in America, he remained uh, in very close contact with his brother, Max Warburg, who was the head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. 
Paul Warburg was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And those of you who are little Orphan Annie fans, you'll remember Daddy Warbucks? Well, Paul Warburg was the real Daddy Warbucks, after whom that character was named. And everyone at the time knew it. I have his photograph in the book. If you'd like to compare his picture to the drawing rendition of Daddy Warbucks, you'll see the similarity between Warbucks and Warburg. Uh, and also, while we're on the subject of cartoon characters, anyone who's played Monopoly will remember the drawing of the capitalist with the handlebar mustache and the cigar. That's J.P. Morgan. Those are the seven men who were on Jekyll Island. And, and as incredible as it may seem, they represented approximately one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world. And these are the men that sat around a table on Jekyll Island and created the Federal Reserve System. What's going on here? Should arouse our curiosity a little bit. It didn't just happen. Well, speaking of it just happening, for the skeptics, you're probably wondering, did it really happen that way? Perhaps Griffin is exaggerating this to make a point. Well, yes, it really happened that way, and to illustrate that, we could go to a lot of documentation, but to simplify this, I'd like to just read for you a short excerpt taken from one article, one article written by Frank Vanderlip, who was one of the attendees at that meeting. And this was uh, written in, uh, in the Saturday Evening Post, and it appeared on February 9, 1935. And this is what Vanderlip said. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come one at a time, and as unobtrusively as possible, to the railroad terminal on the New Jersey littoral of the Hudson where Senator Aldridge's private car would be in readiness attached to the rear end of a train to the south. Once aboard the private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. We addressed one another as Ben, Paul, Nelson, and Abe. Davison and I adopted even deeper disguises, abandoning our first name. <coughs> on the theory that we were always right, he became Wilbur and I became Orville, after those two aviation pioneers, the Wright brothers. The servants and train crew may have known the identities of one or two of us, but they did not know all, and it was the names of all printed together that would have made our mysterious journey significant in Washington, in Wall Street, even in London. Discovery, we knew, simply must not happen. Well, why? What's the big deal here? What's wrong with a group of bankers getting together in private and talking about banking or banking legislation? <clears throat> and the answer to that question is provided by Vanderlip himself in the same article. He said, if it were to be exposed publicly that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. Why not? Because the purpose of the bill was to break the grip of the money trust. And ladies and gentlemen, it was written by the money trust. It's as simple as that. 
Had that fact been known from the very beginning, the public would never have accepted it as a means of breaking the grip over the money trust. And we would never have had a Federal Reserve System because the scam would have been exposed from the beginning. This was like having the fox build the hen house and install the security system. <laughs> so there is a primary reason for the secrecy. And it's a fact that most Americans have not even considered that there might have been some kind of deception, massive deception at the very inception of the Federal Reserve System and for a very good reason. But there's more to it than that, a lot more than that. Consider the composition of this group and the financial powers they represented. Is there anything strange about that mixture? Here we had the Rockefellers, uh, we had the Morgans, Kuhn Loeb and Company, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, all in one room for nine days plus two days on the train coming to an agreement. What's going on here? Anything strange about that mixture? Well, ladies and gentlemen, these were competitors. <coughs> these were the giants in the field which prior to this period had been beating their heads against each other for dominance in the marketplace, for dominance in the financial markets of the world, not only New York, but Paris and London, everywhere. Competitors. This is extremely significant because it happened at precisely that point of American history when business was undergoing a major ideological transition. Prior to this period, America had grown and prospered and surpassed all the countries of Europe as an industrial and economic power because it adhered to the principle of free enterprise competition. And it was in this period that a rapid transition was taking place to the concept of monopoly and cartel. Going back, in fact, to the old world concept which had held Europe back for all these years. Monopolies and cartels were becoming the order of the day in America. It was John D. Rockefeller I who said it. He said, competition is a sin. He believed it. All of his biographers quote him on that one, by the way. And he and others of these industrialists of the period were devoting all of their time to the elimination of competition. They did not believe in free enterprise competition at all. They knew that the road to, rich, the road to riches and power was through the elimination of their competition. And if they couldn't beat their competition out, then they tried to buy them up. If that didn't work, they joined with them in a shared monopoly, and that is a cartel, a shared monopoly. Perhaps I should define that word in more detail, so at least you'll know what I'm talking about when I use the word. A cartel is a group of independently owned businesses which come together for the purpose of reducing or eliminating competition between themselves so that they can enhance their profit margins or secure their position in the marketplace. And they do this by price fixing, they won't compete on price, or they divide up geographical markets or products and services. For example, if we were forming a cartel here, I might say, well, I get the north and you get the south. We won't compete. Or I might insist that I get to produce the gizmo, but you can produce the widget. 
and we won't compete. We'll share patents and processes. We won't compete. And every time we agree to eliminate one area of competition between ourselves, we move closer and closer together until finally we are as one industry insofar as the marketplace is concerned, even though our component parts are independently owned. And that is a cartel. And so that enhances our profits. We can get more for our products and services than we could in the arena of free enterprise competition. And of course, the other side of that coin is that the public pays more for those products or services than they would otherwise. And that is just as true in a banking cartel as it is in any other kind of cartel. And the amazing fact emerges that when you study this period, that for the 15 years before the meeting on Jekyll Island, these groupings of which we're speaking had come together increasingly in joint ventures. They were learning how to avoid competition between themselves. They knew they couldn't knock each other out. They had tried that. It was too costly. Now it was time to come together. And what happened on Jekyll Island is that they formed a banking cartel. And they called it the Federal Reserve System. An amazing fact that all these years we've had something which most people have thought was a government operation of some kind or another. It was, we were told it was a creation to protect the people, to stabilize the economy, and it's a cartel. And the purpose of a cartel is to enhance the profit structure of the members of the cartel, period. That's the second amazing discovery to be learned if we understand and analyze what happened on Jekyll Island back in 1910. But there's a third element which is perhaps even the most important of all. And that is that this cartel went into partnership with the government. Well, cartels often do that to enforce their cartel agreements, but in this case they did it in spades. Now in any partnership, there has to be a payoff. There has to be some benefit to the partners, otherwise they won't go into the partnership, or if they go into it, they won't stay in it for very long. So it's a legitimate question for us to ask, what is the payoff? What's the benefit to these partners? Let's find out why the government is in this partnership, and then we'll find out why the banking cartel is in it. And in order to find out what the payoff is, we'll have to examine how the Federal Reserve System creates money, because that's the key. Now, if you're not familiar with how money is created in America, this is going to be really some experience to go through this for the first time. You're going to shake your heads and say, I don't believe this. I call it the Mandrake Mechanism, after that 1940s comic book character, Mandrake the Magician. <laughs> could create something out of nothing, wave his cape, and it was back into the void again. That's the Federal Reserve System. Now, let's take this and break this down. I, I need to warn you in advance, however, that you shouldn't try and make sense out of this. Because okay? <laughs> you blow a fuse if you think this makes sense. Just remember, this is your plain old American scam that we're talking about here. It's that simple. And I'm going to strip away all of the banker terminology and all the accounting terminology and use just plain old plotting English to make it 
comprehensible. In spite of that, however, I want you to know that everything I'm going to tell you from a technical point of view is 100% accurate, in spite of the simplicity of the language. Okay, with that by way of preliminary, let's get right to the mandrake mechanism itself. It starts with the government side of the partnership. It starts in Congress. When Congress is spending money far and beyond what it takes in in taxes. How can Congress spend more money than its income in taxes? Basically what happens is the Congress goes down to the Treasury and asks for let's say it's a billion dollars more that they need this day and the Treasury official says you guys gotta be kidding we don't have any money here you spent it all long ago everything we've taken in taxes is long spent and Congress says, well, we kind of figured that was the case, but we thought somebody might have dropped by and left some money. <laughs> they said, we know what we'll do. We'll borrow the rest of it. So they go down the street to the printing office. Now notice they're not going to print money. They're going to print certificates, nice big fancy certificates with borders on the corner and an eagle at the top and a seal at the bottom. And it'll say United States Treasury bond or note or bill depending on the length of maturity and it's so impressive it almost looks like money but if you hold it up the light it really says I owe you that's all they are and so Congress takes it and it wants the public to step forward and loan them money in exchange for the IOUs sometimes that's called buying bonds no you're not buying anything. You're loaning money to the government and getting an IOU in return. And a lot of people in the private sector and institutions are anxious to loan money to the government. Why? Because they have heard that it's the best investment you can possibly make. The most secure investment because it is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. <laughs> And that people aren't quite sure what that means, but it sure sounds good. And so they lend the money. But just in, in case there's anyone here in doubt as to what that means, I'd like to explain it to you. The full faith and credit of the United States government means that the federal government solemnly promises to pay you back your money plus interest if it has to take everything you've got in the form of taxes to do it, it will do it. <laughs> it's a promise to tax you. And people don't think this thing through. They think, oh, it's wonderful. It's a, it's a you know, wonderful investment, and I'm going to get some of my money back. Anyway, that's a little side issue. The government is able to borrow a tremendous amount of money and therefore spend more than it takes in in taxes through this process. But never enough. They always need more than that. Not to worry, they say. They walk further down the street to the Federal Reserve Building. Now the Fed has been waiting for them. That's one of the reasons it was created. They walk in there and the Federal Reserve officer opens up his desk drawer, pulls out a big checkbook, and he writes a check to the United States Treasury for one billion dollars and hands it to them. Now we need to stop and ask a question. Where did they get that money? That billion dollars, that's a lot of money. Who put the money in that, into that account for the Federal Reserve so they could give it to Congress or to the Treasury? 
And the answer is, there is no money there. There's absolutely zero. There's just a checkbook. Well, if you and I were to do that, we would go to jail. <coughs> but they can do it because Congress wants them to do it. This, in fact, is the payoff. This is the benefit to the government for being in the partnership. The government can go to the Federal Reserve and obtain instant amounts of any amount of money they want without having to confront the taxpayer and say, we're going to raise your taxes for this money directly. It would be very unpopular if Congress had to go to the public and say, you know, we have a lot of money we want to take from you folks, and it's going to cost you $3,000 per family more than it did last year. You know how long they'd last in office. So they like this Mandrake mechanism very well. The public doesn't know that it's costing them anything. It's just how it works somehow. So this money, this billion dollars, springs into being precisely at the instant that the Federal Reserve officer signs the check and gives it to the government. <clears throat> now let's see where the banking cartel benefits from this partnership. We'll go back to that billion dollar check and follow it. <clears throat> the Treasury official deposits it into the checking account of the federal government. And immediately all the computers start to whir and the ledgers show that the government now has a billion dollar deposit a billion dollars in its account, and so therefore it can write checks up to a billion dollars. Government checks start flowing. Let's just follow a $100 check. Make this real simple to the fellow that delivers our mail. The postal worker gets a $100 check. And he looks at this and he can't imagine in his wildest dreams that just two days ago that money didn't exist anywhere in the universe. But it's a government check now, and it's very spendable. So he takes it and deposits it into his private checking account at the local commercial bank. Now this money is out of the Federal Reserve mechanism per se, out of the government side of the partnership, and it gets into the private banking side of the partnership. A hundred dollars has been deposited. Now the action heats up. The banker looks at that and he goes over to the loan window and he opens it up and he says, attention everybody, we have money to loan. And that's good news for a lot of people because that's one of the reasons we go to the bank, isn't it? To borrow money. So it's good news when there's money available. And the banker says, we have $100 deposited, but don't worry folks, we can loan you more than that. We can loan you up to $900. Well, how? How can you loan out up to $900 when you only have $100 deposited? Well, it's not difficult if you're in the Federal Reserve System. Here's how it works. The Federal Reserve says that the member banks must keep no less than 10% of their deposits in reserve. So there's $100. They keep 10% in reserve, $10. And they can loan up to $90, right? So we loan it to you, ma'am. You borrowed $90. What do you do with it? Well, you want to spend it. So you want to write a check on it. You've deposited it into your checking account so you can write a check. In many cases, it might be put directly into your checking account. But now there's $90 deposit. 
in addition to the $100 that was deposited to start this chain. Now we've got the $90 that was loaned as another deposit. Well, the Federal Reserve says that you only have to keep 10%, so we keep 10% of the 90 and loan the other 90%, and the person that borrows that puts it right back into the bank as another deposit. Well, the Federal Reserve says you only have to keep 10%, so you do, you know, this goes around and around and around to the revolving door until finally the whole action is played out, and the bottom line is when that $100 deposit comes in from the postal worker, the banks, in essence, can loan up to $900 because $100 is the reserve, and that's 10% of 1,000, so they can loan the balance or the difference, which is $900. Now, where does that money come from? Well, <laughs> same place. <laughs> it springs into being precisely at the point where the loan is made. It didn't exist before anywhere. Now notice the important thing here. The money that's created out of nothing and given to the government, the government spends for its purposes. But the money that's created out of nothing by the banks is not spent by the banks, it's loaned by the banks to you and to me, and we pay interest on it. Not too shabby. Interest on nothing. I wish I had a magic checkbook like that, where I didn't have to have any money, just a checkbook. And I could write checks, $10,000, $20,000, $100,000 all day long and loan them to you folks and you pay me interest on it. See? Not too shabby at all. This in fact is the payoff to the commercial banks in the cartel. This scam has become legitimized by law. And we're told it's a wonderful thing. We think our banking system is wonderful. But it's a scam. Not only interest on nothing, but perpetual interest on nothing. Because notice, once this money is created, if you pay it back, they have it on their ledger as a credit. They can loan it out again to somebody else. And the whole object is to keep loaned out. They don't, they don't like the money not loaned out because you can't earn interest on it. You've been listening to The Experiment Club, Episode 8, The Curse of Jekyll Island. Be sure to support our page by contributing a donation. You'll see it on any platform. Support our page, make our podcast last. And remember, we must take the first step on the journey to the truth. It may change your perception of reality and bring a better understanding of the real events that led us to where we stand. Come along for the ride. You may never want to return. The CIA, UFOs, JFK, Sumerians, Earth Chronicles, Anunnaki, Nibiru, Affairs of the Gods and Men. Running out of time, it is what it is, was what it was. But today's a new day. Screw it. Grab the moment with Dave Gregory.
your host and ponder tomorrow before you become another piece of the puzzle and don't forget you have to step into the darkness to see the light